0: Episode of Stub Me Down. My name is JW, and as always, I'm here with my best friend and co-host Skinny. Skinny, Happy New Year! Happy 2023 to you, my friend. It's great to see you. Yeah. How have you been?
1: I've been. I've been good, man. It's good to see you too. Uh, I wish it was more in person. We, you don't get to see each other too much. We just see each other virtually. I will tell you, I think it's a little too late for you to be saying Happy New Year, but. <laughs> I'll, uh uh, Larry David, but, yeah. I, you know, Happy New Year. It's, I haven't seen you, so it's good to see you. Wow, it's, it's
0: it, it is a few days beyond my usual <laughs> Happy New Year window, but I haven't seen you really in person except for maybe yeah. twice uh, via... Mazel tov. Yeah, great to see <laughs> you. I missed you up in New York, buddy. Uh, we had a great time up there at the Garden for Four Nights of Fish. Obviously, you and Peter were missed greatly, but we'll get to do it next time.
1: Yeah, it's great. I mean, I watched two of the shows. Uh, we watched 1230 and 31, did the couch tour. And then I got to talk to Wook Plus after uh, the 1230 show, which was a hoot. I mean, I love those guys. They're just so much fun. And, you know, that's just, well, it reminded me of last episode with Tim. And I know we kind of like to count that down. And I just thought that was a great episode. And he's just such a wonderful person and and so fun to talk to it was just great yeah all the laughs I keep laughing every time I've listened to it now it's not like I've listened to it a hundred times but I've listened to it several and uh, every time it just gets better it's just little little chunks in there that just make me laugh so really good time to be on their show I was glad that he was on ours and you know that's all about community man I love that
0: Yeah, absolutely. I watched you on the After Fish After Show on Wook Plus after the December 30th show. I really enjoyed that show. I loved your conversation with Kevin and Tim. And as you mentioned on our last episode of Stummy Down, Tim Donahue, aka Weekend Wook, joined us and stubbed us down on a show from Dick's Sporting Goods Park Fish this past Labor Day. It was the Rain shortened show on September 2nd, Skinny, so they only did one set, but they really brought the Thunder, really nice Carini, Ghost, uh, Ghost and Reba in the same set. So we had a good conversation with Tim about that, considering those were the two songs that were battling it out in the final of the most recent Fish song bracket really nice tweezer during that show and as you said it was just a great time talking to Tim about music in general you can tell those guys just absolutely love everything about it and uh, I'm gonna actually I did a review of MSG with Brian Weinstein from Attendance Bias that'll be coming out soon as well so um, what?
1: without me? yeah <laughs> I know buddy we did miss you it was there. a little bit weird
0: <laughs> it was the first time honestly that it was just me and Brian and right. um, I love that dude but you know stummy downs a pair bro i
1: know a pair of what i don't know but yeah it's definitely a pair a pair of deuces
0: a pair of something a pair of jokers i think is probably more appropriate
1: you usually take those out of the deck no doubt
0: well that's <laughs> Oh, that's good. Uh, All right. That's good. All right. Well, Skinny, today is our third episode of season four. Today's going to be a little bit different, though. We are going to get to a show. There is some music that we're going to talk about. But today is very special. So one of the things that Skinny and I have always talked about on this podcast is, is telling stories, telling stories about who we are, how we became friends, the period when we became friends and started seeing shows, our family skinny is family for me we know each other's kids and parents and siblings so family is something that's hugely important to both of us today's story is one that i have wanted to tell for 21 years but never had the opportunity or wasn't ready to maybe even hear this story and this is a story that especially if you're probably over 30 you have a similar story. Probably not similar to what we're gonna hear today, but probably similar to the story that Skinny and I have. So today we're gonna get into a very personal story, um, an emotional one, but one that for posterity is important for me to tell. And I wanna, first of all, uh, express a lot of gratitude to you, Skinny, for wanting to do this and humoring me as we've kind of figured out how to make this work and uh, obviously your creativity helps things like this come together so thank you you know this is very meaningful and i'm just thrilled to be doing this with you of all people
1: well hey man thanks a lot dude i appreciate that but you know no worries as i like to say and you like to say so i i think this is an important story that needs to be told and we've kind of spent our time this season already talking about journeys. And this is a personal journey for you. I think it's a personal journey, like you said, for millions of people in this country that nowadays we seem to uh, forget about the factual and forget about the realities of these journeys and whether they're about concerts or other things that we've witnessed or we've been to, or we've shared together, I think this is a different type of share, but it's one that uh, after reflection, I think people will really understand why we wanted to tell it. And if not, you know, that's okay, too. But um, I'm glad that we're on this journey together, too. And and this is a type of story that I think uh, it's important, you know. So that's first and foremost, you're an important person to me. And I, this is an important story. And just like you said, family is important. So this is a family story, you know, not that. Tip my hand a little bit. So I'll let you I'll let you get back to it.
0: <laughs> yeah, so with that, I think that's a that's a pretty good lead in. So our guest today is my mom's youngest brother, John Bodenhop. He is my uncle and my godfather. And without a doubt, the closest extended family member that I have on either side of my family, my mom's side, my dad's side. So it gives us great pleasure to welcome in John, my
2: Uncle John, to
0: stummy me down. John, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome, Josh.
2: And uh, hopefully I'm coming in clearly.
1: Yep. You sound great. Sound great. Thanks so much, John, for, for joining us. And uh, I, like you heard us say, we're our theme this this season is, is a journey, and, and we're so glad that you're here. And again, I, a lot of gratitude for you to be here to tell your story. You're welcome. You're welcome.
0: So to set the stage a little bit, everybody knows, at least uh, our regular listeners to stummy Me Down, know that I am a high school teacher. I taught U.S. history and U.S. government for about 10 years before transitioning into my position now. I wasn't always going to be a teacher. And... When I graduated college in 1999, I was kind of adrift, I guess you could say. (laughs) That actually is when I met.
2: Aren't we all? Yeah.
0: Yeah, that, yes, absolutely. That is when I met Skinny, and we became friends in the summer of 99. After I graduated college, I worked at a restaurant in downtown Baltimore, and Skinny and I became fast friends, and discovered our common love of music, and the rest is stub-me-down history. However, after I realized I couldn't stay working in a restaurant forever, I got a real job wearing a suit every day doing technology staffing services. It was fucking awful. I hated it. I
1: didn't even understand that job. When you had that job, I was like, what do you do? (laughs) Yeah,
0: like... It took me at least five minutes to explain Just what I was doing to every single air.
1: person that I, that I
0: met. Yeah, Yeah. I was like, really, I wasn't doing a whole lot of work. Right. To be honest, I figured out the game, and you do maybe an hour or two's worth of work, and then you make it look like you're working the rest of the time. You know, George Costanza, right? You look annoyed, people think you're busy. <laughs> so I was kind of humming along and whatever. We would go see shows, and man, I showed up to work hungover a lot, and got in trouble a few times. I just wasn't digging it. It wasn't for me. So we get to the fall of 2001 and summer had just ended. And I'm sitting at work in my little office on a Tuesday morning, September 11th, 2001. I was looking at fantasy football scores or something from the football game the Monday night before. And my boss was sitting across the office from me at his desk, and he's on the phone with the owner of this company, and apparently the owner of the company had a TV in his office, and I obviously can only hear one side of the conversation, and my boss says, wait, what? A plane hit the World Trade Center? And I obviously looked up and was like, what? So I'm in front of my computer, and I, I try to log on to CNN.com, and there's you know one brief picture before the entire internet crashes. So a couple minutes later, we were all standing in what we call the pen, the bullpen, where all the nitty gritty recruiting in the technology staffing business took place. (laughs) And we're listening to the radio, and a second plane hits the second tower. And I looked at this kid sitting next to me, his name was Craig, and I said, my uncle works in the World Trade Center. At that point, I was sure it was the South Tower, but I wasn't 100% sure. I didn't know what floor those were 110-story buildings. So, obviously, huge freak out, couldn't get in touch with my mother, couldn't get in touch with anybody. There was a complete dearth of information coming out. And then you start hearing all these crazy reports, a car bomb in DC and, you know, all sorts of stuff. So, my brother, my oldest brother lives in DC, so I left my job and went to where my other brother worked who was about 10 minutes away and walked into his office and everybody was standing in the lobby where there were these two flat screen TVs and I walked in and I saw my brother standing there and the south tower collapsed and I looked at my brother he looked at me we both just started bawling our eyes out had no idea What had happened? Well, I am very happy to say that my Uncle John is here with us tonight. He is a 9-11 survivor. Um, Obviously, he's much more than that, but this experience was something that eventually led me to leaving the profession that I was in and going back to school to become a history teacher. A lot of it was because once we knew my uncle was okay, my mind transitioned to something else this event that we had all lived through slowly changing from a current event into a historic event. And I didn't want that to happen. And so I went back to school and became a teacher so that I could try and keep that alive. And not just 9-11, but history in general. I'm sure that there's a lot of people that would agree with me that we have a A big problem with understanding and actually knowing the factual history of of our country. We need
1: more people like you in the world. I mean, you know, I mean, it takes a lot of courage to tell that story, bro. So I'm appreciative, definitely.
0: Well, and for us today, John is gonna talk about his story and that day for him. I will also say that this is not something that you have not spent a lot of time talking about this. You know, maybe some broad strokes. I know that you had to do some official things as a survivor from the world trade and probably from your company. But other than that, I think your mindset has been to move forward. Is that fair to say?
2: Oh, yeah, it is. The, you know, the the interesting thing is when you have an experience, I was only focusing on me and what it did to me and what I've learned Is I'm more appreciative of understanding what kind of effect that that day had on everybody else, and uh, especially my family. And you don't think about that when you get into an experience like that. You're too busy trying to figure out the whole situation, its impact on you, and, and, and so forth. So, you know, I have a lot of friends who probably haven't recovered from it. Uh, some never went back to work uh, there are all kinds of stories you hear which are real which I won't go into um, I, I just really think that the amount of humanity that I experienced that day was the most incredible thing that I've ever experienced in my life. I forget the attack on the on the towers but the people we uh, were walking up town and It was just amazing how everybody was caring about it. And that what I understood is that we as humans have tremendous capacity to be warm and understand and try to help someone who's in need. And I just wish there was more of that and that we didn't need a 9-11 to bring that humanity out in so many people. You know, the, the day is the day. Uh, you know, people have car accidents and they're traumatized by that. And hopefully they get through that. Uh, so the idea is perhaps I'm a bit more empathetic in terms of people's experiences. And one thing that I have learned is just because I have experience doesn't mean everybody else doesn't have any. And that regardless of age or years of experience, that's their experience that's unique to them and that i respect that and you know i might be older than a lot of people but you know i mean i'm 70 years old now i'm lucky to be here and i guess i I view myself as the caboose of my siblings because i'm the youngest you know in the train the family train (laughs) <laughs> and I like that, to be honest with you. But
0: Hey, I'm the youngest, too. So, you know, we,
2: we got that going. I, I know you are. <laughs> so, yeah, <we're, laughs> I am, too. So yeah. we're all in so, this together. We're always bringing up the tail end and, you know, something good thing for us. No doubt. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you know, it, it, it it's like sometimes it's very hard for me to talk about it. A lot of times people will find out that I'm there and they'll want to ask questions. And I'm like, well. If you don't mind, i just prefer not to speak about it. But it's a lot like, you know, Josh, you talk about your dad and his experience in Vietnam or any Vietnam vets, they don't talk about it. Or any World War II vets, they don't talk about it. Or Korea. Uh, I did have the pleasure of meeting with some Medal of Honor winners that were in the Korean War. And one in particular, his name was Hector. I forget his, his last name. And uh, what a gentleman he, he was, okay? He talked about some of his experiences, but somebody else told me what he did. You know, they're in a valley, and his platoon was all but wiped out. There was one other guy. And he set up rifles along the perimeter and kept running and picking it up, shooting it, putting it down, running to another one, and doing the same thing to hold the enemy off. In addition, he was using the butt-end of the rifle to hit the hand grenades back at the enemy as they were throwing them to him. And, uh, he sustained a, you know, a, a bad hand out of that. But you know, in terms of his, his, he couldn't use his right hand, I think. But the point is that it's a real life experience where, you know, today there's the internet. So everybody assumes that, well, I saw it on the internet, so I understand. Well, It's like that classic line in Good Will Hunting when Robin Williams is talking to Matt Damon and he said, look, just because you read Oliver Twist doesn't mean you understand what it's like to be an an orphan. That's the reality of life, is that experience. And that's kind of what I walked away with from this. I'm lucky. I consider myself very, very lucky that I got out not once, but twice because I was there in the 93 bombing also.
1: Yeah, people forget about that. You know, people forget about the genesis yeah. of that. Yeah, they do.
2: <laughs> and, uh, you know, we were out of our office for, I forget, two weeks before we were allowed back in. So
0: you had that experience in 93, and then, and that was a truck bomb in the basement, right? So yes, is there any in the back of your mind even, or like, did you have any reluctance? or you like, ah, you know, this was a one-time thing, and we got them, and it was bad but it could have been worse and we're lucky and you know let's go back to work i mean was there any sort of i mean it's less you're talking less than 10 years right eight years
2: yeah well,
0: from there to to 2001.
2: you know we all went to a gin mill well actually we went to the hotel down the street and we sat at the bar and i had to go in the men's room and wash my face because it was all it had black soot all over my hands and face From walking down the stairs, you know, walk. You walk down seventy-three flights of stairs in the dark, and I remember I was helping one of my colleagues because her legs started to give out, and so I'm carrying my briefcase, my overcoat, her overcoat, and I'm helping her down the stairs. I was pretty tired, but thank God I was a lot younger then. I look
0: for the helpers. Look for the helpers. Yeah. Yeah. So
2: you know, it was uh, was inexperience. And I remember after we got back to the office, I had a couple. I had a DEA agent as a client, and he told me that the World Trade Center, the Empire State Building, all the tunnels were constantly getting threats weekly, monthly, and they have to treat each one very seriously. And uh, I remember they had these huge tractor trailers outside. They were generators that were keeping the trade centers operating and then they put these huge cement planters in that were probably six, eight feet in diameter. And they were really there as a buffer in case somebody was gonna drive a car bomb into it. But there was uh, Rick Verscorla, who was a former, he was a Vietnam vet, he was British, but he also was a member of the US military and that's under that he went to Vietnam and he had a friend, they were very close. And uh, one day, He was called to the Pentagon with his friend and they said, look, what type of terrorist attacks do you think we could experience? And his friend said, well, you know, somebody could fly an airplane into the building. And they looked at him and said, why why do you say that? He said, because you asked. And he said, we don't want you to repeat that ever again. And that was probably, you know, 1998, you know, I'm
1: guessing. Yeah. And Rick Roscola, it's interesting he brought him up just because from the history of it, he was the one that was pretty afraid of that happening, correct, probably after that meeting. And yeah, he was also lost in 9-11 because he went back and was evacuating people and people talked about him being very he was imperative, like he, he was the guy not only because he was security, but also because he was worried about his people. You know, there was something about him that was a little bit beyond just his job and who he was and and the legacy that he left. left.
2: Well, you know, more importantly, he was a stabilizer. Mm -hmm. He was a individual who kept you calm in the worst of conditions. And he went back up uh, because one of the people in my office, a guy by the name of Lindsey Herkness, when I went through, I missed him. I didn't even know he was on the floor. He may have heard me saying, is anybody here? But he ignored it. And he died that day. He was the only financial advisor that died. And there is a day, that, a year that goes by that I don't think of him because I feel guilty that I did not get him out. And uh, his brother, I saw at his service, I explained to him. and He goes, look, it's not your fault. And I go, yeah, I, I, you can say that, but I still feel bad that For some reason, I didn't get him. And probably what would have happened if I had discovered him, I would have died with him because he would have fought me, you know, to get out. So maybe that was uh, the way it was supposed to play out. Still, it was wrong. But to me, Rescorla was a stabilizing factor. He was smart and he knew what he was doing. And he did everything he could to get people out, including going after Lindsey. I think he was on his way up there, uh, to get him as well. And, you know, nobody knew the building was going to collapse. Nobody even knew there was a second plane for that matter. And, you know, when you see, you know, sort of funny (laughs) when you're on the 73rd floor, you get a lot of, you see a lot of stuff outside. And one, one day I'm looking out my window, there's a Fuji blimp, (laughs) the Fuji film blimp outside my window. Now, he was far enough away, but the point is that, you know, you hear this, and then during Fleet Week, you know, you see the U.S.'s Enterprise come up the river along with various other huge ships. And, you know, you see it, I mean, it was an amazing place. I mean, my view was the Statue of Liberty. You could see it was pretty far away, but
1: right. you could see it.
2: And so when on that day, I saw all this smoke And the windows in the Trade Center were probably maybe two feet wide, I'm guessing now. And you had to stand up on the heat exchange, which is where the heat came out. And I put my shoulder up against the window. I'm looking up and I just see this massive smoke. And then all of a sudden, you see this wall of what I call brown plasma shooting in front of my office, a good 200 feet away from the building. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? So I go out and I got guys running towards me from the other side of the building, which faced the North Tower. And they were all saying, you're not going to believe what just happened. And I go, what are you talking about? So I said, all right, look, nobody takes the elevator. So I stood in front of the glass doors and I made them, you know, take the stairs. And there were guys saying, you're not going to believe. I said, shut up. Walk down the stairs, get out of the building, help anybody else out that you can. And I waited and I waited till we got everybody out.
0: How many offices did you have? Were you, So were you in charge of the entire 73rd floor or was that all your company or were there a multiple companies on that floor?
2: No, we occupied the entire floor. OK. The, the way the elevators operated within the trade centers are in the middle of the building. So all the offices, all the office space was around that. So in my years there, I was there, what, 11 years, I had uh, an office virtually in every side of the building. They kept moving me around. And uh, it was kind of neat because you get different views and stuff. But uh, so what I did is I ran through everywhere just to make sure everybody was out. And then there was Josh and and Rick and they're the fire wardens. And they were on the phone with the port authority. There's like a red phone in the hallway uh, where the elevators were. And I used to be a fire warden there as well, so I was familiar with that. And I told them both, I said, you got to get out. And they said, well, we're waiting. I said, what are you waiting for? There's nobody here. Let's go. And I started walking down the stairs. And uh, they were still there. They were actually on the 73rd floor when the plane hit the towers. And one of them said, yeah, I looked in your office. There wasn't a piece in it. Everything got blown out. Jeez. And uh, so my office, my partner's office, which is next door, the branch manager's office, which was on the corner, uh, were were just completely empty. All the stuff had been blown out. And what really is weird after we moved uptown and it's like February of 2002 and I'm getting a call from some guy who's an engineer who was his company was retained by the Deutsche Bank building because that's right across the street from Tower 2. And that building was torn down because there was so much damage from the collapse of the world trade center. There were I beams, the size of, you know, tractor trailers that went through the building, like somebody threw them as if they were spears. And he goes, are you John Boddenhop? And I said, yes. He says, well, I just want to let you know that I found all your stuff on the roof of the building. So in other words, all the stuff that was in my office, ended up on the roof of a 50 story building across the street. And he sent a picture of a plaque that I had with my name on it. And, uh, he said, I can't touch. I said, I don't want it, but he said, it's a crime scene anyway, you know, because they couldn't touch anything. But that was, that weirded me out, <laughs> you know?
1: Yeah. That's interesting. You said crime scene, because when we did go up shortly after nine 11 at the end of November, which we're, we're going to, kind of dive into a little bit after you tell your story we had the green fencing was around for blocks yeah and so we were on church street looking down towards what was left of the north tower and was just even you know we're tall um you know luckily and unluckily i guess at that moment but you know you could see it i mean it was just the stark reality of being up there And it was, you know, it's weird to say you wanted to see that. We wanted to be respectful of the space, obviously. We weren't going up there for a good time. We were going up there, I guess, a little bit of history witnessing, but also to be respectful and pay respects to people that lost their lives. You know, that story is amazing. I, I had a classmate. He was an underclassman, a junior at the high school that I now teach at. Uh, who perished in nine eleven, and we have it's a Jesuit school, so we have Mass of the Holy Spirit where we remember his legacy. It was just a great guy, Dan McNeil, and I had the pleasure of being able to teach his nephew, who he would have been so proud of, who graduated from Loyola a couple of years ago, and you know those stories along with yours are interesting because they are experiences um, for so many people. We forget, I, I guess. Sometimes how many people did not make it out of those attacks that I don't know how I can't think of a better word. It's not really a better word. It's just a word that's more descriptive than horrific and, and violent. Um, there's so many connections to it. If, Like Josh said, if you're over 30, there's something that you have connected. And I just find that the connection that you have now with somebody that's been you know a friend of mine for over 20 years and, and we kind of lived that time together and now we're talking about it uh it's just really engaging and i'm, I'm again I, I know i keep going back to gratitude but it is something that helps you be a little bit more reflective of the moment that somebody is experiencing
2: well you know 9 11 is my generation's pearl harbor moment and you know pearl harbor was as you know a long time ago and there's that a memorial for the Arizona. And and there's just, there are certain things that those people who lived through that had to live with for the rest of their lives. Right. And no one can truly understand their experience. And they, and for example, I don't articulate it that well, because I can't, it's just in me. And uh, perhaps I've learned to be less reactionary, more grateful, Uh, to things, more tolerant. Uh, I don't know, I'm not a very good tolerant driver. Terrible. (laughs) So, I mean, let's get real here. You You are from New Uh, Jersey. uh, You are from uh, New Jersey. uh, (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Uh, Let's get real here, you know. But I had immense respect for uh, the people that survived. Uh, You know, we had one guy in my office who did a $20 million trade with no money in the account for his client. <laughs> how, how he got through, got it approved, I don't know. So I remember my boss and I sat down with him and said, where's the paperwork? And he said, well, I don't have it. We said, go get it. So we he had to go visit the client, get the client to uh, sign the paperwork and give him the money to pay for the trade. And he goes there and the client says, what trade? What are you talking about? So that was the end of that. So what we did is we, unfortunately, we just couldn't understand why he could do such a thing. He's a bright guy, a master's from, you know, a major well-known school. We just didn't understand it. Well, he used to get gas at this gas station up in North Jersey, and uh, he also would had met these guys. He was working out with them at the gym, and it turns out that those guys were the guys who flew the planes into the towers. That's incredible, and he thought they, were, he thought they were after him. Okay, and so I can understand now better. He was just not of the right mind. You wouldn't do a trade like that, but you wouldn't. I wouldn't do any trade, <laughs> you know, with that money in the account right. unless it was uh, prearranged. But you know, the point is that there were a lot of things that the effect that it had on people is immense, and I think that's what I see more than anything. It's, it, it's hard for me to imagine how people are the way they are sometimes because of that experience, you know? They take so much for granted and uh, uh, I don't think we should take anything for granted. And frankly, I'm guilty of it myself.
0: I think we just have, we have short memories, you know? And I think we get a little bit more lost in right now And I think we forget lessons that we've learned. You know, there ain't no explaining the things people do. I think the other side of that is what you talked about earlier, Uncle John, and that's the capacity for humanity that you saw, you know, that you experienced, whether it was on your way down or moving away from this horrible disaster and while at the same time processing the things that you're seeing. And I mean, the enormity of the experience is, for me, it's like, I can't can't imagine all of the input. You know, first of all, you know, you come out and you turn around and you're like, holy shit, I was just up there. And the view of both towers and then, all of the chaos around you and i mean debris raining down and i'm sure people security and police and fire trying to get people away and then there's oh, you you know a, a woman stumbles or you know somebody's bleeding and you you know you pick them up and you help them and and that capacity i think you know is the flip side of that you know maybe we forget but in the moment we're there and we're doing hopefully what if we needed the help somebody would do for us. I guess that's kind of how I look at it.
2: Well, you know, I remember I walked up to the boat with Stephen after I got to his office. Uh, he walked me up to the boat up to 34th Street. And I remember I pulled out my wallet to pay for the boat ticket and the guy says, Nat's on us today. And I went, thank you. The boat was jammed. There's, I don't know how many people were on it, but there was – not a lot of room. <laughs> and I remember the boat heading south down the river going past the towers where they stood and the smoke. And you could have heard a pin drop on that boat. I mean, the engine was running, obviously. My point is that it was nobody moved. And, uh, you know, you just see the effect that it ha- this sort of thing has on humans. And in order of magnitude it was a, it was it was unbelievable so when you were walking so you get out of the building and then uh,
0: about how long after before you got out did the south tower come
2: down i don't know because i was busy trying to to uh get a phone to call janet and i was it was funny there were lines at the payphones and the payphones didn't work I went into kids.
0: For those of you out there, pay phones used to be on the corner, and you would go and put a quarter in, and you could make like a two minute phone call. You could also call collect.
1: I got you one better. I I used to pay. I remember when it was like a dime to make a phone call from a phone booth. So I still got you on dating
2: yourself, buddy. (laughs) Well, I'm not going there, but (laughs) I remember going, I went into a hardware store uh, fish market. I went into a, uh, what I believe, and I'm not trying to be disrespectful here. It was a gay Chinese hairdressing salon. And I remember, (laughs) I remember going in and saying, can I use your phone? And they, they couldn't have been nicer. They were, you know, these guys were dancing around like, you know, and, and just use his phone and they put a quarter in it. And I remember when I was a kid, there was a movie, with James Coburn in it and it was called our man Flint and in there was a red phone that was a direct line to the president of the United States and it was there was sort of slapstick kind of James Bond kind of movie uh, or TV sh- uh, movie and uh, that's what this phone looked like so I put my quarter in and I'm trying to dial and it just didn't work so I, I said thanks and I left Then I went into I don't know how many other places and I was in Chinatown and all I kept running into was fish on the sidewalk because they have it all on display. I finally get into a Chinese restaurant and there was a lawyer from my company that I ran into because, you know, I'm standing in front of the Millennium Hotel, okay, looking at these buildings. And all of a sudden I started to cry. And I was like, and then I'd stop. And then I'd start and then I'd stop. And this guy came up to me and said, are you okay? And I said, I'm really just, I just walked out of that building. i have kind of, you know, pro- processing this. And he said, well, I'll walk with you. So he walked with me the whole way up to my brother's office. And you said
0: he was at 15th. He was at 15th and yeah. 5th, you said?
2: Yeah. And I mean, so
0: that's not a short walk from. No, that's, that's a little Yeah, Well, wild. you know, yeah.
2: at that hour, you didn't know what the hell you were doing. So, <laughs> right. So, True. uh, I'm in the Chinese restaurant and I go up to the desk. I say, can I use your phone? Well, we're taking orders for takeout. I said, I appreciate that, but I really need to get my wife. I just came out of the towers and then this guy in this other table said, so fucking what, you know, what the fuck, you know? And I I turn around and I said, do you have a problem with me? What the fuck is you? I mean, I wanted to kill him, you know? And the other guy said, we're sick and tired of your kind. And I looked at him and I go, where did that come from? So you're having some lucidity and rationale in the most bizarre circumstances. Anyway, I couldn't use the phone. They, they they threw me out. So so I kept going till I got to Steve's office. And then I called a client of mine out in Akron and he called Janet to let her know I was okay. And that was probably 11 o'clock, 1130, something like that. So everybody that uh, saw the plane go into the South Tower thought it came right in and on the 73rd floor. And they said, those guys are toast. Yeah. If you ever see a picture on this, of the South tower of the explosion, I'm inside that in the building. So that'll give you some perspective on having a front row seat at grand zero. Wow. And I, you know, I see that picture once in a while. I'm like, wow. You know? Yeah.
1: I mean, it's a humongous explosion. Yeah.
0: And that image you know, is, is one that is burned into my brain. And when I was driving from my office to my brother, John's office, I was talking to my dad, I finally got through to somebody. And I said, did Uncle John get out? And he said, I don't think many people got out. And, you know, we were, we were you know, staying positive. If anybody knows my mother, she's a she is the beacon of positivity. That's true. But it was, it was very hard to imagine that you would have gotten out of that shit. I mean, I was, I couldn't believe it when we finally
2: got word that you that you were out. And you know, meanwhile, we're- well, your brother called me on the when I was on the boat. John did. He called my cell phone. I said, can't talk right now. I have to call you back.
0: (laughs) I talked to you after you had gotten back home. And then I went up to, I went home that weekend and um, I saw you that weekend. And uh, my dad and I went sailing and it was really weird. You know, you're out there trying to like, but you can't take your eyes off of the gaping hole and the fires were you know there was still smoke and i mean it was they burned for two months yeah i mean it was it was burning when we were up there in in november yeah for months
1: when we were up there it was still and in, in november going into december you know what i mean it, I, that i found disturbing i guess was um things were starting to open up like there was a bar that we went to not far from where we were kind of standing at church street and I forget whatever the cross street was, but you know, they were telling us at the, the bar that, you know, there was debris up and down the streets. They just kind of, we just opened up like this past, you know, week or two, you know what I mean? It had been a couple months before they had cleared the debris up that far. So then we're like, you know, when we left the bar, we were talking about it with each other. Cause we had a couple other friends with us we're just like, Jesus Christ. Like how, amazing it is like what happened and, and amazing, I guess I'm just saying like, like all that blocks and blocks and blocks. And then, you know, years even later, they're still finding, you know, human remains or, or remains from the blast. Like I couldn't, that is hard to comprehend for somebody like me and and Josh that were, you know, on the periphery, if you want to even call it that of that experience, but having that experience, nonetheless, you know, sometimes when you try to talk about how you live through an experience, it pales in in comparison to others. But I guess that's not the point here. The point is to hear that personal story of, uh, you know, what you witnessed. I I don't know. I, I still feel like I get I don't know if it's emotional or like you, like I think of it as very factual, especially in this day and age when everything that you see is a conspiracy. Nothing is factual. Everybody's looking up at 140 characters, you know, things that are coming across the screen headlines only, you know, there's no deep analysis or reading it's all conjecture and conspiracy and just quite frankly, you know, bullshit. bullshit. Right. Good timing there. (laughs) So, and that, and, Yeah. (laughs) Well, we've been doing this for a little while. So, you know, I just find it always interesting when real people that witnessed a real experience, I'm having kind of that conversation sometimes with my students, myself, we argue about stupid little stuff like sports or whatever, uh, football or something like that. And I'm like, you know, is it the experience or is it like the result for you guys? And I think especially this younger generation right now, I think it's more about the results and what they see, and then they decide or discern quickly whether or not it's believable. Um, and that, th- this is a record of, this is what really happened to one person. Well, you know, here's the thing. I have a saying about YouTube,
2: okay? And that is you can't smell sausage when it's cooking. To me, experience, there is no substitute for experience. It's different if you're trying to figure out how to replace the battery in your key fob of your car. You look at a YouTube video and there it is, you figure it out. So that way you save 80 bucks by having to go to the dealer and have them do it. <laughs> but I mean, there is a, a great use for that. But there is no, no substitute for experience because it gives one perspective on their decision-making. It gives them a better thought process of, okay, what went into this and how do I really feel about it? And there's just not enough of that. Everybody's just reacting. And it's it's not a good thing to do that. It's different if you put your finger on the stove and burn it, you're going to react. That's different. But life isn't literally like that. It's headaches. It's cursing at one another. It's having a debate. It's all kinds of things. And what you learn from that you learn how to deal with people through learning about human nature, what it's all about.
1: It's a slow burn. It's a yep. slow burn. It's yep. not. It's not supposed to be or meant to be so dynamic or, or dynamite.
2: I mean, if you focus on, uh, you know, it's like the Nasdaq. Okay, ever since it's been doing gangbusters with this past year, but if you look at the average return of the Nasdaq over the last twenty-three years, it's three percent annualized. Okay. If you look at interest rates back in 2012, the 10-year treasury was trading, it was about 1.7%, 1.68% rather. 10 years later, it was at one78 So you had 10 years where the interest rates were completely flat, okay, and going nowhere. No one remembers that, okay? They only remember what happened last week or last month, and you make a lot of mistakes when you don't keep things in perspective. Amen to that. And with context,
0: you know, like there's context around some of these things. So in the, I mean, I guess in the aftermath, short and, and long term, I mean, how did you manage to deal with something so vast and incomprehensible from the horrible things that you witnessed to just the struggle and then 9 11 was just a day but there it was it's an era right it's an era of our
2: history Well, it's every day for me
0: right so how did you try to address some of those things did you are you do you like participate with especially in the aftermath were you kind of commiserating with other people that went through the same experience or were you trying to just go dark on the whole thing and deal with what was your your own experience before you could kind of engage with others in their experience or was there a, a comfort in that shared experience with other people i mean did you participate with you know survivor groups or or you know anything like that kind of gave you that ability to deal with what you had gone through?
2: Well, first of all, the firm provided psychiatric help to all of us. That's one. Two, uh, I was angry, and I would say for a number of months, I had a hairpin trigger. Uh, I would not hesitate to tell somebody to go fuck themselves, okay? You go dark for a while because the the thing that I did was I buried it, and— uh the the, what saved me i think to a certain extent was my job i still had my job uh it was kind of weird you go from an office that's well equipped to one where the only thing i had in it was a chair and a desk there was all my files 10 years of files and client records and really personal stuff from people gone okay so a friend of mine came in and said somebody gave me this baseball signed by Hank Aaron and you need something in your office so he gave it to me I still have it oh that's cool I see cool. you got a baseball I'm a yeah big, I see that
1: yeah yeah I'm a big uh, yeah. It's only Orioles but you know Hank Aaron I wouldn't I wouldn't turn my nose out that's for sure
2: yeah I, I don't know if he actually signed it but you know it's his name's on it
1: <laughs> but right, you know right.
2: uh, so what happens is the best way to deal with things like that is to help others so one of the things I wanted to do was get involved with the YMCA, which I did. And I became a member of the board and was on the board for, what, 16 years? Got off a couple of years ago. But um, I, I also volunteered for New York Cares. Uh, I was looking at a number of things because I felt that was the best way to heal, was to help somebody else because then it would help me. I did not. T- I did not talk to others that were there that day about it. I, I will go to a dinner in New York every September. It's all a group of us that work together. None of us talk about that day. We just are happy we're there having a few drinks and dinner. Um, so it's it's everybody has a different way of processing experiences. And some people are good at it and some aren't. And there's a lot in between.
0: Have you been to the memorial? Uh, in New York? The fountains there?
2: Yeah. I, yeah, I, I did. Janet and uh, the girls and I were in the city some years ago, and we were having either breakfast or lunch at a restaurant, and we weren't too far from there. And so I said, well, maybe it's time I at least get out and take a look. So I did. I went to the ref, uh, reflecting pools or whatever, but I see all these people milling about, and I thought, these people are walking through my living room. I don't like it. And then I went up to a policeman. I said, where's the museum? And I'm standing right in front of him. I didn't even know because the geography had changed so much. And I left. But I also remember I was in the Marine Midland building. I had a client there uh, probably a month after 9-11. Maybe it was even two weeks. I can't remember. And so I took the subway down because the Marine Midland building is across the street from the South Tower, but it's up like a couple of blocks, not directly across the street. And this client was on the 50th floor of the Marine Midland building. And I remember getting in the elevator and hanging on to the bar for dear life. And I, I made up there. We had good meeting. But the worst part was getting back in the elevator and going down. And I remember I hung on to the bar with both hands <laughs> the way down. <laughs> right. So I finally get out. And I'm heading to the subway, and I see a cop, and I go, "Hey, look, uh, I, I, can I take a can I take a look?" He goes, "He goes, uh, you were there, weren't you?" And I go, "Yeah." And so he walked me down a, a little bit uh, towards uh, the Millennium Hotel, and I looked, and I said, "Okay, I've had enough." And I walked, got in the subway, and went back uptown. I didn't go back down there for ten years, you know. And, uh, you know, I I just, it's hard for me to do that even now. I mean, I've been there. Uh, The World Trade Center or the Freedom Tower, they call the stupid thing, is so different. Even underground, there's a mall area that's massive. It's all underground. And I had to go ask somebody, where the hell am I? Because I I took the subway, the E-Train. I used to take it down, I used to take it all over the city. You know, from World Trade, you go up to Penn Station and uh, the E-Train then goes over under the river and uh, on the east side. And uh, uh, I was back on it and I was like, oh, my God, I, nothing's changed. The E-Train is exactly the same today as it was 20 years ago. OK, it brought right. back a lot of memories. I remember it stopped and I got off and there, we used to go underground right into the South Tower And that was all closed off. And uh, so, you know, I went up the subway stairs to where uh, Alexander Hamilton's buried. There's a graveyard up there. And uh, uh, we went to a restaurant, Villa Moscone, which is where we all go for for our 9-11 dinners and stuff. And I didn't go this past year because, frankly, I didn't feel like it, you know. So, and as it gets further and further time-wise it's starting to fade a little bit in my memory and I'm kind of grateful for that. I handle it better now. Uh, as I told you when I was out in Montana with Steven and John Davis and Liam O'Grady, who are cousins fishing and Liam looks at me, he goes, tell me what was it like that day? And he goes, I, you know, I really been reluctant to ask you about it. I started to tell him about it and I started to cry and I had to stop. So it, sometimes what happens is it just kind of hits and I got to deal with that. And, uh, you know, it's like you're an alcoholic, you got to admit you're an alcoholic from time to time and manage it accordingly. And, And I do that, but I purposely don't talk about it that much
1: because of that reason. Yeah, because because talking to somebody, which you would think would be simplicity, all of a sudden turns into complexity and complexity turns into simplicity and vice versa. Yeah. You know what I mean? I think trying to have a conversation about something as intense as, as what we're talking about creates all kinds of dualities, which I'm just sitting here. Like most of the time I interrupt a lot on this podcast <laughs> and, I, and I'm just sitting here because I'm thinking about those things. And I, I, again, I, it makes me think about that day. It makes me think about the experience. And again, I'm just so appreciative of you sharing that journey because that's a tough, tough journey and you're still walking that path. I don't you're you're always going to be on that path forever, you know.
0: Right. Yeah, it's not it's not something that you, you know, it's a wound that never heals, right? I'm sure that there are images and visuals and memories that probably still to this day probably get pretty loud. I mean, they do for me and I was
2: a few hundred miles away. Well, you know, as I said, the effect that it has on those that are close to you is is a real eye opener. And uh, you know, my father called Janet, and he was he was crying before he must have picked up the phone because he saw the plane go into the building on television. You know, he was like, "Have you heard from him?" <laughs> you know, and and right. Janet said, "No, I haven't heard a word."
0: Well, I mean, and a lot of people at that point think, "Holy shit! I just watched." Somebody that I know and love, you know, in our, my grandfather, your father's case, my son.
2: like By the farm. Yeah. Die.
0: Right. Like on yeah. fucking CNN at nine o'clock in the morning on a Tuesday. Yeah. You know, it's that enormity. I think that that has always been the thing that I have struggled with, yeah. you know, and, and you know, you described it when you were on the boat heading back and skinny's been on the sea streak ferry with me before and i've done it countless times
1: from highlands to 34th street and i've been on the observation deck uh when i was uh i used to sing in a i'm sorry everybody i went to choir camp
0: <laughs> here's the choir story <laughs> the it's choir went to
1: choir camp and i used to every summer at the end of the camp you would you sung in saint patrick's and saint bartholomew's and so then of course we would do other side trips we'd I've actually been up in the crown of the Statue of Liberty. I've been at the top of the Empire State Building. I'm lucky. And I got to go to the observation deck at the World Trade Center. It wasn't windy. We got up there and, you know, I guess I was maybe nine or 10 years old. So, I mean, really a formidable experience. So I always think about that day being on top of that building and then seeing that 21, 22 years later, I guess, crazy. We
0: were just in New
1: York for
0: fish at Madison Square Garden for four nights, and we were staying on Thirty Third Street. And every day we walked by the Empire State Building, and every day I would say to my wife Megan, "Look, babe, Empire State Building." Right. <laughs> and every day she would say, "Oh, cool. You want to go up?" And I would say, "Nope. <laughs> Fuck no."
2: <laughs> it's cool <laughs> up
0: there, dude. You know. It's- no thanks. I don't. I don't do. And I don't. I. I I've never been a big fan of heights. I blame my brother, John, who we would go skiing and we would be on the chairlift and he would like make the chair rock back and forth if we got stopped. And he'd be like, oh, look back. And I'd always freak out about how high we were. So tall buildings, bridges, I, I don't do.
2: And now like, you know. I'll tell you an experience I had is we, we used to have these big ass windstorms and I remember one time when the, all the drawers in my office opened up by themselves because of the building leaning.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you could feel the building yeah. sway when it was windy, right? Oh yeah.
2: <laughs> now and, I can't uh, do it. I mean, that. it was wild.
1: that way, I would have. I couldn't have done that. <laughs> I would have quit.
2: Yeah, the Empire State Building probably doesn't do no, that.
1: <laughs>
2: no.
0: No, I don't think so. Uh, they didn't build them like that back in the. In the, what, the 20s, yeah. I guess, when that was built. Yep. So when the plane hit and you were on, what, you were on sixty 65, you said? 63. 63. You said you weren't quite knocked to your feet, but obviously, like, the the building quaked significantly.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, it was uh, the bu- building yawed yeah. a great deal, and ceiling tiles were coming down like crazy. And everybody started saying, holy shit. Right. I mean, literally, everybody was saying, holy shit. And, and uh, at that
0: point, did you know basically what had what had happened without actually seeing it, but knowing? No, 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 no clue. Uh,
2: no, I had no idea. Uh, and was
0: there like rumor spreading through the crowd as you're evacuating or was everybody like, let's just
2: get the fuck out of here and we'll figure it out later. Let's just get the fuck yeah. out of here. And I kept telling everybody to shut up and don't talk. Yeah, that's actually not a bad play. And uh, I just remember all the shoes. In the stairwell, because people, you know, a lot of ladies' shoes, mainly, you know, because they had the, the little higher, not uh, pencil kind of heels, but the the flat right. ones, and you know, people were great. They were helping each other. It was the one thing I did know, or see rather, was you think the the person that's incredibly brave turned out to be nothing more than a wimp. It was amazing how human nature changes in panic mode. That might be and, uh I'm not kidding. <laughs> I mean, it was like, you can't do this.
1: You know, shut the fuck up. Get out. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, people get frozen with fear. Some people react to that differently. Talk about an experience. You either overcome it or you don't. You know, I mean. Uh, no, there was one guy who was in a wheelchair
2: and somebody stayed with him and wouldn't leave him. And they both died that day. Yeah. So, I mean, I heard that story. I mean, there's. There's horrific stuff that I heard that we won't get into, but you know,
1: I don't know. I'm here. I'm lucky. Just well, you know. we're glad you're here, John. Yeah, <laughs> you oh, know, yeah. I mean, and and again, I, it's just uh, the power of this experience and this conversation is just, I don't know. I, I'd like to say inspiring or whatever, but it just makes me think about a whole lot of stuff, and it makes me think about how when somebody has an experience that I'm opening to myself as i get older too to listening and hearing what people have to say especially about the important things like the humanity and the compassion and the things that come out of something that's not even just negative it's that it's evil and it's wrong and it's horrific so to hear that part of it too is really great i love that part and and thanks for sharing that
2: well you know springsteen was a member of our beach club for a while uh when when the kids were a lot younger and uh I saw him in the lobby, and because uh, one, one time I, I had to go to the, to the head, and I'm in there, doing my thing, and the, somebody walks in, and he's in the, the urinal next to me, or, and I hear this, how's it going? Turn around, was Bruce. So we had a nice little <laughs> conversation, and I looked at him and said, mine's bigger. No, didn't say that at all. <laughs> <laughs> But, but I saw him again and I said, you know, the rising was really good. And I told him that, I mean, some of the songs are great. And Kristen was here because Janet took care of Max, my grandson, or our grandson rather today. And she came to pick him up and I told her we were going to have this discussion. And she goes, why don't you mention that the music from the rising is, is, uh..." and I didn't think about that. And I remember some of the songs on it, some of them a little depressing, but, that kind of was the theme and the CEO gave everybody in the firm a copy of that DVD or CD, you know, uh, it was good, but it, but I can't listen to it today. You know, it's just not my deal. It's definitely
1: going to bring you back. Yeah. I mean, somebody that's touched that experience as you have, I, I can imagine that being a tough yeah. listen, yeah. no doubt.
0: And music has that emotional connection right i think we've talked about that a lot skinny on on the pod here is yeah how music can pull that stuff out whether it's tied to a memory or whether the lyrics hit you a certain way or whether it's just the way the rhythm and the notes hit your ear sometimes it's it literally is a physical reaction and bruce did a lot around 9/11 honoring first responders and benefit concerts throughout that fall. Um yeah. he's from this area, and um, so there there was you know I think a genuine effort there on Bruce's part to do what he could considering his medium and his his reach. And um, I'll be seeing Bruce actually in a couple months. He's him and the E Street Band are going on tour. I can't wait. It's gonna be it's gonna be awesome.
1: That's cool. I'm glad you're
0: going to that. John, I, uh, man, thank you so much for, for joining us. This is something that I've wanted to do for a long time. And the historian in me that I come by, honestly, we had my dad on. And that conversation focused a lot on his love of music and and where that came from, which by osmosis, essentially, I got. Your experience here had a huge impact on my life and the direction that I took in the months and really the year after. I mean, should I quit my job by May of 2002, gotten into grad
1: school, and then... (laughs) (laughs) started working with me (laughs) yeah well
0: that was that was coming up next but skinny and I bailed out and went to jazz fest at the beginning of May in 2002 and that was like my first trip after I had quit this suit and tie job that I hated and was going back to school and it was the first time in that you know eight nine month period that I think I had really kind of figured out like a little bit of a direction of my life and um, music was had certainly taken a huge part of it but then this whole education piece and this you know becoming a history teacher and and government teacher and working to tell stories and make sure that there's an understanding of what has happened in a factual sense i owe a lot of that to you because of the fact that you lived that day so i'm very very grateful for you, and
2: well, you know, give yourself a lot more credit. Okay, to me, life is choices, and you chose to change your life. Okay, and if I had something to do with that, I certainly would have rather have done it a different way. <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, yeah. so be it. Okay? You did You didn't know. It's not your fault. But the point is that we choose our paths and we choose to be miserable or we choose not to be miserable you've made some tough choices for yourself and i admire that and it would you know we won't go into that but my i understand we're all family and and uh took a lot of guts to do what you did period i don't need to embellish on it um and i know that so i respect you for that well, I appreciate it. And that. Uh, the fact you have skinny Iran, well, I respect
1: that. Yeah, <laughs> I'm all right, man. You know, he keeps shit. me honest. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm like the yeah. uh, satanic Jiminy Cricket. <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, That's a good one. I'll use that tomorrow right. when I talk to my clients.
0: Well, uh, I would really like to thank my Uncle John for joining us today and sharing. This experience, it's an unimaginable experience even 20 years beyond, as I said, this is something I think it's important. We'll always have this, you know, your grandkids can go and listen to this and learn a little bit more about you and who you are and why you are the grandfather to them and the father to their parents that you are. That's a big thing for me. Uh, So I'm I'm really grateful
2: for, for that opportunity to do that today. And Skinny. Thank you. Josh, Blair and Kristen gave me a glass jar, I'll call it. And in it were pieces of paper with stuff written on it. And there were 70 of them. And each one was a quote of an experience that they had with me throughout their lives. And, you know, one was when you cried when we got in the car to drive back to college. You know, uh, when you helped me get through that bad hangover. When, I mean, there are all kinds of stuff in there. That's and a good to one. me, success, yeah, well, I, there were lots of uh, funny ones too, you know. You know, I collected all the car keys when they had parties here and I wouldn't let anybody go home and, sure. or I'd drive them home. Or one of them was right. no matter what time we called you in the middle of the night, you always came and picked us up and, yeah ended up driving six of our friends home at the same time (laughs) you know it's it it, it, to me successful parenting is leaving your children with a good impression and for the first time in my life i realized i really did yeah
1: that's amazing that's awesome congratulations because i i can't express to you how thankful uh we are to have you on this Uh, i knew this was going to be uh just a wonderful and great conversation and empowering and informational and all those other things, academic. So I, I'm so appreciative uh, of you sharing your story to us, you know, about uh, this experience. So thanks again. I appreciate okay. it. Yeah. You're welcome.
0: You're so welcome. once again, we wanna thank my uncle John Badenhop for joining us today, sharing his intimate experience from 9-11 Family first, family always. I love you a lot, Uncle John.
2: Likewise. You guys take care and thank you. Thank you for your time, okay?
0: Yeah, thank you so much.
2: Okay, take care, guys. Happy New Year.
0: So as we said, we are gonna get to a show today, Skinny, so let's go ahead and get into today's Stub Down. All right. So if you're new to Stub Me Down, welcome in, thanks for joining us. The premise of the show is that Skinny and I have been to a lot of concerts over the years. We pull a ticket stub from those shows at random, and we use that ticket as a jumping off point to talk about the music, where we were in our lives at that time, our friendship, the funny things that happen along the way. Today's show is a little bit less random. We pulled it to connect to our experience in New York City shortly after 9-11. So, Skinny, if you don't have anything else, are you ready for me to stub you down?
1: Yeah, man, let's get to it.
0: All right, buddy, well today's show is a good one. We saw two on this little run. There was a seven-night run that Phil Lesh and friends played at the Beacon Theater in New York City. We went to shows on November 30th and December 1st, and Phil was playing about, a I guess, about a 21 show. If you count the New Year's shows, it's about a 23-show fall tour that Phil was doing. started in November. There was a show in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, Stabler Arena on November 17th that we have also talked about on a previous episode of Stumb Down. If you go back to season one, episode four, no apologies, we talk about that show. So it's great to talk about another one of those shows because that fall 2001 run for Phil and Friends was legendary. I mean, those shows were really can't miss. But they came into this show and man this was an unbelievable night of music i really felt like the whole night especially upon reflection as we look back at this 22 years later almost this set and this show kind of feels like a love letter to new york city almost in the song choice some of the lyrics we'll talk about as we get through the set but it definitely had a we're here for you we love you we can get through this together type of mentality in the set, which was very powerful considering the experience we had over those couple days.
1: Yeah, and also it's kind of billed as a George Harrison tribute show because he passed away too. So there's like elements of all of those things in both of these sets that are just absolutely amazing and to be able to witness that and all the other things that we witnessed for those three days that we were in New York I mean it was a pretty powerful weekend and coupled with some amazing music and it was the cue it was the Phil Lesh quintet which was probably if you're going to sit here and argue or do whatever you want with it it was the best of The iterations that Phil has had, and I know he's doing some great stuff. I'm never going to ever say anything bad about Phil. I'm just so glad that he's still around and, and he's creating and making music. But to me, this was the pocket. And this show definitely shows you what the pocket was. And with everything that was happening in and around New York and in the world, George Harrison, I mean, that's a huge huge thing. When we heard that, it's just like, Oh my God, you know, we got to go up to strawberry fields. And there were hundreds and hundreds of people up there, you know, the next day, you know, on 12 one. So I had an amazing weekend. There's a lot to remember about that weekend. um, Some of which we'll talk about and some of which we only talk about with each other, (laughs) but to see what we saw and, and to be in New York, it was a happy time even though there was a lot of tragedy and sadness kind of hanging in the air it, it, i was a happy person that weekend a, a, a lot of it probably had to do with the music too yeah and
0: i was going to say you know you you look at where we were right and there is that profound sadness anger depression that comes along with witnessing what we saw, right? And right. I wanna qualify that what we saw, I'm talking about a few months later. Right, we saw we are,
1: aftermath, we didn't right. see what John saw.
0: Right, you know? and so I remember when we were leaving lower Manhattan to go up to Strawberry Fields the next day that this is on 121 now, I had that profound sadness of the tremendous, the enormity of it, the tremendous loss of life, the unbelievable destruction. And we only saw a little tiny corner, but we could see enough to know that it was, it was a war zone. Then to have the dichotomy of going and doing something that's like the pinnacle type of activity for me, for us, and going to a show, you know, and then in between, we went to, you know, Strawberry Fields and and the George Harrison and, and all of that kind of weighed in, too. So going into certainly going into night one or night one for us on the 30th, I was, I think, a little bit hesitant to have to have too good of a time because how can I go and have a good time in New York City when?
1: You know, all this shit happened a few blocks away. Well, I didn't feel that way. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just, I'm built different than you, bro. I mean, I, I thought about it. I knew about it. I knew what we were going to do the next day. And I just felt like I was ready for some release. And, you know, seeing Phil and Friends earlier on the tour in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, really was like, oh, you know, we're going to New York to see him. Yeah. Being in New York, just like. Hey, like come back to New York. You know, everybody was saying that's what you need to do. You know, the, the best way to help out, you know, I was like, you yeah, know, right. What can I do? And I'm like, all right, cool. You know, I like, let's, good to see some shows <laughs> let's go see to- <laughs> some shows and spend some money in New York. You know what? If that was the littlest thing I could do to support whatever business in New York, whatever it may be, and, and go to the beacon and and be in the city, I think. Yeah, just knowing from visiting that city so many times in my life, I know like that, that people there really appreciate it. And I, to circle back to what John was saying, it's just like there is a, a real cool humanity about New York City. Say about it what you will, but you might just be a little bit afraid of it. There's nothing to be afraid of. New York is, is the big apple. There's nothing like it, man. There's nothing like it. Well, look, that's true. Let me read over. Uh, The first set of this show. Yeah, absolutely. So it starts out with a really amazing Not Fade Away, which is, it's amazing to say, an amazing Not Fade Away, but it is. Into a Tears of a Clown, into a Black Peter, into a Dear Mr. Fantasy, into a Phil and Friends tune, Midnight Train, into Fire on the Mountain to close the set. So you walk in and maybe you were feeling angry, Jada, but you... (laughs) I'm sure things turned around from you i mean i was there with you so i know that musically things probably turned your uh, mood around just a little bit a hundred percent but i think what we
0: see with this first set starting right off with not fade away is that the band is well aware of where they are and what they're playing in new york city i think meant to the people that were there and I looked back at this uh, let's see they played four three shows before this one and three shows after none of them had a set list like this when I said earlier that this show was like a love letter to New York look at this first set not fade away know our love will not fade away I mean that's a pretty strong message to send to a city that just went through the tragedy of the century, right? Tears of a clown. You know, Smokey Robinson, right here. Like, how many people are in that mode where they're just trying to get through every day and they're putting on a face to right. do it, right? Right. Black Peter. We've talked about Black Peter before. Yeah. Right? You have very eloquently talked about the meaning behind Black Peter, and I remember you specifically emphasizing run and see. Yeah. You know? fucking New York. Yeah, yeah. Dear Mr. Fantasy, play something to make us all happy. I mean, and then you get into the lyrics of Midnight Train and this was a heartfelt acknowledgement of the tragedy, but it was also, hey, you know, we keep on keeping on. Know our love will not fade away. I mean, to open the show with that, a 24-minute version of that, I mean, I think that there was some real punch behind
1: that as a
0: choice you know what i mean
1: yeah i agree i mean there's a lot in there that speaks to me i mean to end the set with fire on the mountain speaks to that because on archive it's mentioned as the george harrison tribute show yeah again you're making like these really salient points about well isn't it really like the new york tribute show and the three shows before that they hadn't really done anything like that and now they're really telling the story And again, there's there's two sides to the story. There's Harrison dying and then there's also 9-11. It's just it's just powerful stuff to see that in a set list. And we've talked about this, too, on Stub Me Down, which is the Phil and Friends shows that we were seeing were telling stories and sometimes they were telling like blatantly this is the story, you know what I mean? (laughs) Like. There was no like slapping what,
0: you in the face with a tortilla. With right.
1: It. Exactly. gonna come back in the back there and hit you over the head with a tack hammer. You know what I mean? Like if you can't figure out the theme, you know, you obviously didn't really pay attention to literature or anything. <laughs> and um, I, yeah, I agree with you. I, my favorites of the set were pretty much everything. <laughs> <laughs> this is like it's
0: it's uh, tough to find
1: a
2: dog. I, right? yeah,
1: yeah. It's like the worst take <laughs> ever. But, I mean, I always love Black Peter. They The intro, they do that a lot of justice there. I mean, it's 15 minutes. I at mean, Black Peter, like eight or nine minutes, you get through and then you get a solo and that's it. But you got Haynes and Herring, so everybody has to kind of step up to the plate there. I, I, I really love that. I love the Tears of a Clown because, you know, Warren used to just kind of tease that for the next eight years after that. <laughs> you know, <I> mean, <laughs> yeah,
0: we heard a lot of Tears of a Clown. yeah and i
1: think i only saw it one more time after this maybe like that they actually played it that's a stat that we would have to look up you know i i I think i probably only saw that maybe one more time dear mr fantasy is just like an old like it's just a great grateful dead standard cover of a traffic tune (laughs) and you know what i mean it's just it's so good and then i Fire on the Mountain.
0: Yeah, Warren belts that out. And I mean, you're also talking about a 20-minute version of Dear Mr. Fantasy, right? So that's got some legs to it. And that's one thing about Phil's band that we've talked about with the previous shows we've done, right, is he let those songs breathe in a different way than they did with any of the other iterations further the other ones and even the
1: grateful dead played these songs differently than the way phil did i think phil jammed them out a lot more i mean yeah there's no 24 minute not fade away in the grateful dead catalog i'll bet Careful. you okay all
2: right man i, I might f- stat check you okay, bet. make a
1: note to stat check bet. you for episode uh, five dollars <laughs> <laughs> five dollar bet but listen you know, they were not ever really keen on playing too many covers. They played them a lot, I think, later on in their career. But, like, it's not like Grateful Dead was just playing covers all the time. You know, I like sure. how they spaced it out when they did it. And Dear Mr. Fantasy, when I was seeing them, was a pretty standard cover. You could catch that, you know, pretty easily. So I always love that. And then A Fire on the Mountain says a lot. It does a lot. And it really is a great way to end the set. You can't believe what's gonna happen for second set, I think, when you're there. Probably that's the feeling I had was because Fire on the Mountain is fire on the mountain. It's just got the wah wah, it's just got a great jam or jams. This one has I don't know, maybe one or two pretty nice jams at ten minutes. But they could have went a little bit deeper with that, if you really wanna complain, but you know, they're going to, because then they always open up sets with jams. <laughs> well, the other thing is, is
0: there were no breaks in this set. I mean, they started playing Not Fade Away, and they, there was a note in the air until they walked off the stage after fire. Right, correct. Uh, right. And you're only talking about six songs
1: in the first set. So oh, i I wasn't like, even counting. That's crazy that you just did that. But it
0: felt like a lot of music, and I was listening back to this day. And that's a that that I think is a great description of Phil and Friends as an act. There's a lot of music. By that I mean like everybody contributes, and there's something to listen. You can listen to Baraco, you can listen to either of the guitars, you can listen to Phil, or you can listen to them collectively. Like they fill
1: the air with sounds dude that's I mean? a t-shirt <laughs> <laughs> fill the air uh p h i l phil man yeah, that's great phil. hey listen sometimes when you think you we should make yeah, some t-shirts when you think you're not doing good analysis you know i'm here for you that was okay. great uh i mean there's not much else to say about it the tears of a clown too is a complete also that's the george harrison reference too which is a complete, like, we've talked about this a lot in the past, maybe 10 episodes is this idea of the second song in a, in a set. I mean, you go see a any Grateful Dead. I don't care if it's J-Rad, Splintered Sunlight, Solar Circus, whoever you're seeing on whatever coast or in the Midwest of this country. And they put in a Tears of a Clown in any set. You're absolutely happy about that. You're definitely ordering another round of drinks from the bar if you hear that yeah no, no doubt, no doubt. so no doubt. Uh, so first set again eleven thirty two thousand one from the Beacon theater in New York City set one open with a not fade away into a tears of a clown into a black Peter, into dear Mr. Fantasy into midnight train, and then into and set ending a fire on the mountain. so, Really awesome set. I was excited, except we had a guy next to us before I read the second set. I don't know if you remember this. I do have the memory of an elephant. I was thinking about the show today <laughs> when I was listening to it, and uh, there was a guy next to us that basically took a nap for like most of the second set, and it, we were beyond belief that this guy was taking a nap. It had a sizable belly. We were in the balcony a... for this. right? no, 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 we're in the no balcony no. for both. No, ones? the next night we were in, we were on the in the floor seats for this orchestra or whatever, okay. like close. All right,
0: maybe fifteenth. Thank God I have you, dude, because I, <laughs> man, my memory is clogged with. Well, everybody was giving me resin, shit I,
1: I <laughs> had actually everybody. I had balcony ticket, and everybody else had fifteenth row, or we, it was pretty close. It was like in front of Warren, like fifteenth row. And everybody got mad at me because, like, I was doing something stupid because I gave one of the ushers. I'm, I'm with these guys, man. I don't have a ticket. I, oh, you gave him 20 I bucks. gave him a 20 bucks. But that's New York. You got to give somebody yeah. something. And, like, what did it get you? But it
0: didn't get you anything.
1: Yeah, it did. It got me down there, and I didn't have to worry about a thing. I was with my friends, and I was in the 15th row.
0: Back when we used to stub people down, people.
1: <laughs> exactly. And I had this but I, my seat was not on the aisle where I had room. I had to sit next to 300 pounds, sleepy Joe next to me. (laughs) (laughs) Let me read the second set. Uh, so here we go. The second set starts off with a jam into no more. Do I into eyes of the world, into unbroken chain, into the first verse of dark star into while my guitar gently weeps into dark star jam, into the 11, into Dark Star Verse 2, into Cosmic Charlie, and then of course you have the Donor Raps, and then the encore is Box of Rain. And I think, Josh, you're going into lyrically, if you go back and listen to these lyrics, you're going back to that same theme that you're talking about, with the exception of While My Guitar Gently Weeps, because that's George Harrison. I mean, that's on point, George Harrison. So I understand why they would write George Harrison tribute show. However, some of those same themes that we're talking about and we just talked about with your Uncle John are are definitely coming through in this second set.
0: Yeah, I definitely... You can basically pull a a lyric from every one of these songs and put it in a letter and mail it to New York City as a
1: message of support and hope and... Even discernment. You know what I mean? No more do I. Yeah.
0: And, and it's funny, too. You know, uh, I'm sure that my depth of thought 21 years ago, 22 years ago, whatever the fuck this was, was not where it is now because of a number of factors. But thinking about this show in terms of talking about it after talking to my uncle and the Bigger picture, the twenty thousand foot view, if you will, of where we were kind of on the timeline. I like
1: thirty thousand feet. Okay, <laughs> it's still up there.
0: You know, you can you can do the same thing I think with the with the second set that you can do with the first, and it, and it, and it is to look back and say they were putting something together here that was pretty blatant. But the no more do I. I mean. 21 minutes no more do i had debuted at the show that we talked about earlier the november 17th 2001 show at bethlehem that song really slotted in so nicely with phil and he was really able to get into it get out of it do a number of things with that tune it was a a very phil it was a very quintet tune Um, that I absolutely loved. This version I love because they kind of have like a double jam. There's like the first jam, and then there's another verse, and then there's another jam, but it didn't kind of end the ragey way that it had. It kind of had a little bit more of a quieter finish before it transitioned into Eyes of the World, which is almost 17 minutes in itself. So a beautiful version of Eyes of the World out of No More Do I. And I think when we saw the November 17th show, it was Eyes of the World into No More Do I.
1: Yeah. And I'm looking at just the numbers. You know, I'm not about. (laughs) I am not. It just depends on the song and I guess the timing or the setting. But I'm not about necessarily the length of the jam. But look at this. The intro jam for set to seven minutes. No More Do I 14. Eyes of the World, 16. Unbroken Chain, 18. The First Verse of Darkstore, 10. Dude, that's like a serious crush of good old Grateful Dead. I'm sorry. Like, if you, you know, with the exception of No More Do I, but that, you know, Phil writes that song. He's, he is the Grateful Dead.
0: It fits. I mean, it's it's it fits perfectly, especially out of that intro jam into the no more do i and then eyes unbroken i mean come on that's a that's as fucking good a start as i could write to a a phil
1: show from this era no doubt there's no there's no grateful dead shows that look like that. yeah seriously (laughs) i mean what are you gonna put a cassidy then instead of the no more do i you know what I mean? This definitely,
0: this definitely kept our uh, Unbroken Brothers streak alive. Yeah, definitely. And <laughs> this is
1: a really good one, too. I mean, you know, it's almost 20 minutes. That's why I I, I don't like to remark about time, because I, I time is a social construct that nobody really <laughs> has to attend to. However, when you're looking at musically, like, you see complaints of nowadays like this wasn't that long or this didn't really have a jam and I can't believe they're pulling back that you know that happens all the time especially with this type of music that we see but this is 2001 and they are just that's got a jam that's got two jams this has two three jams that unbroken has the composed piece part which is good enough but then the jam out of it is ridiculous the one in Bethlehem absolutely insane Um, and a dark star uh, which is quintessential dead music. Yeah, You know what I mean? That Those Robert Hunter lyrics are quintessential dead music and the jam that surrounds it, the psychedelia, where they go, the quasars, the solar systems, where they can take you either emotionally, physically, or whatever it may be, that is quintessential dead. And then they sandwich a while my guitar gently weeps in that
0: yeah i mean if you if you look at it in and among that dark star from verse one to verse two and that jam that they put in the middle you get the while my guitar gently weeps and you get almost a 10 minute version of the 11. i mean what the fuck
1: and the 11 (laughs) that's in that's in the great that's yeah and what i didn't realize was like the 11 like the towers am i that dumb like if i was smart enough to like call songs for phil and friends back in 2001 which i wasn't how would you not say and we were kind of doing that with each other with our close mutual friends we were saying like well what would they play and then nobody said the 11. (laughs) i mean (laughs) you know I don't think we were playing
0: the book game, but yeah, I don't think
1: we were playing the book game it, uh, either, but I, I think we started playing it either like kind of around then or shortly after. I think so. And maybe this show kind of taught us we should play that game a little bit because that would have been a solid, solid pick if you were picking. And, you know, I'm cognizant of this, <laughs> the tragedy, everyone. I'm just saying the towers looked like an 11. Yeah. And, and, um, I, yeah, everything speaks to that. It's funny. Now I'm arguing with the fact that they should call this the George Harrison tribute show because there's more about the theme of this show. That is, I love New York and I wanna, we wanna make sure as a band playing seven nights here with people coming to see us that we're spreading our love and our attention towards everything that happened here and they hadn't done that the previous three i mean the next night they didn't do anything like this no although dickie betts did come out which was super cool for the encore. when you look
0: at the the previous night's set lists coming into this i mean you the first night was uh november 26 and they do uh comes a time help on the way um they play 11. Unbroken, Night of a Thousand Stars. So there are some of the same songs, but the setlist structure, in none of these shows does the setlist structure play like it does for the 30th. You know, you get a blue sky in on the 27th, Banks of the Deep End. You know, they're, they're kind of mixing in some of that Warren stuff. You know, they break down some of the Terrapin Station stuff. Uh, Morning Dew. But there's still not that top to bottom structure that, This show feels like it has, you know, and then after they do the second verse of Dark Star, Cosmic Charlie to close the set, like go on home. Your
1: mama's calling you like, yeah, that's a crazy ending to that, which I always loved because I always felt like the quintet when they play that, like Phil, love to hang on to that shows over. We're here tomorrow night or wherever we go. And that go on home your mama's calling you yeah and that spoke a little bit different um at the end because i listened to that earlier today it was the last song i listened to and i was like man i love when they do that but then i thought to myself well that's different thinking about what we're going to talk about you know your mom is like you know what i mean that kind of hits home a little bit different especially the ending of that song and yeah, Dark Star crashes. Yeah, like you know, it's a lot. So and then, it's you a know, lot. and
0: then it's Box of lot. Rain. A box of rain will ease the pain, and love will see you through. I mean, yeah, it's the period at the end of the sentence of this love letter, and that was the conclusion: is love will see you through, and which is Be- very Beatles. By the yeah, way, yeah, right, right, yeah, yeah. I guess, I guess that's true. So I think this show kind of operates in a duality. I think in the immediate sense, we were thinking more along the George Harrison lines. I think for the overall weekend, we were thinking more along the 9/11 lines and all of the things that we took in over the course of that two days that we were up there. But reflecting back from this side of history and and 20 years later, 21 years later, wherever we are, it it almost seemed, when I was going through this in my show prep, it almost seemed a little bit too on the nose, you know?
1: Yeah, but some things are like that. Some things are, again... But it was
0: also, I think, more based on where my mind was and where my preparation was and where my thoughts were about talking to Uncle John and his experiences. And bridging why we were in New York to
1: why he had his experience in New York. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, simplicity becomes complexity. Yeah. and Complexity becomes simplicity. I like that. <laughs> That's my new thing now. Put that shit on a fucking t-shirt, bro. I won't remember <laughs> it by tomorrow. <laughs> That's why we have this podcast. That's so why that we can have this podcast. Stuff that I can remember. <laughs> well let's uh wrap up phil lesh and friends from the fabulous beacon theater in new york city on 11:30, 2001 jam to open up the second set into no more do i into eyes of the world into unbroken chain into dark star verse one into while my guitar gently weeps i'm getting tired of saying into into <laughs> dark star jam into the 11 into Dark Star Verse 2 into Cosmic Charlie, which ends the set. And then, of course, Phil's famous Donor Rap, which if you've never listened to that, like, talk about humanity. Listen to what he has to say, And then they encore with Box of Rain. So, pretty cool. Bunch of first time played. Like, we we don't have to get into stats. Maybe when we intro episode 4, maybe we'll talk a little bit about stats or something that we uncovered. Or maybe I won't. <laughs> Josh i do have a stat the only stat really skinny that was worth noting. was the first time Wild got My Guitar Gently Weeps.
0: Yeah, that, I mean, as far as the band is concerned, that was a debut, was While My Guitar Gently Weeps. I did not look to see how many times they had played it since, but I know that they had played it, I think, a couple of times after that. More interesting, I think, would be some of our personal stats, especially on Unbroken and No More Do I, because I feel like every show after No More Do I debuted, that we saw, they played it. Unbroken, too. And Unbroken we saw a a lot, which which is awesome because I fucking love that song. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think set list wise, this scratches me right where I itch, especially now. And I texted you the other day. I was like, man, this show's really good. This has been a long time since I had listened to this one. 1117 is a little bit more in a regular rotation. I think i got to add this one back, too. And I think I also I want to go back and listen to some of the other nights from this particular week-long run just to kind of relive the comparison purposes, you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll tell you, like, um, we had a very New York weekend up there, and there was a lot of good times. I have to kind of bookend that experience that your uncle talked about with, like, you know, there are opportunities to overcome adversity and I think friendship and community and experience with other people. And um, the thing that really harkens me back to like, it was a good time was like, cause it was like, you cannot just fall down in the face of everything that's terrible. And I know it's easy for me to say that having, you know, some privilege, but also having like to go through a bunch of terrible things in my own life and everybody. You know, I think at the end of the day, I'll remember that as like a really pivotal experience. Like it was fun and also serious and also provocative and discussion inducing and intelligent and sad and depressing. And sometimes all those emotions are all right. You know, you have to be able to kind of wallow through some of that stuff just to kind of find out who you are and also chalk that up to like hey man that's something that i did and i can talk about it until the day i die you know what i mean
0: well i think that's one of the things my uncle talked about right was that idea of experience and your experience is your experience how you choose to learn from that and utilize it going forward is a choice that we all make you know i mean shit we're sitting here we had the opportunity to talk to him talk about this show you know in a way bro it's it it is it's therapeutic you know I still live with 9-11 every day and being in New York afterwards was therapeutic for me I grew up 45 minutes from New York I saw the Twin Towers every single day and to be able to go up there and kind of get in it a little bit and certainly you know weren't in it like we weren't victims but we certainly could see how New York was impacted and how more importantly it responded the people responded how we as a family responded to what happened with my uncle and you know I mean it's it was a, a formative event obviously in a lot of people's lives but specifically mine and uh, you know, I think it also made me kind of lean a little bit harder into music, as well. You know, it was music became that place where your mind could go to forget about the other things and step aside from some of the other things that you were thinking about. So yeah,
1: music is a it's a very supportive foundation. It's a nice cane if you need one. You know what I mean? And sometimes it, you get into it
0: and you you know you get icky with it, and sometimes it's literally the distraction
1: that you need.
0: And uh, I know a lot of people out there probably feel the same
1: way. Yeah, man, no doubt. I totally agree. So I heart NY.
0: Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Go buy a t-shirt. Hey, so as most of you know, we partner with the lot by Primal Soup. I just want to mention a couple of vendors that are on the lot by Primal Soup, which is a virtual vendor for all sorts of goods and wares that you can find on the lot. This is a farmhouse is the fish crafts and tour trinket side of Tiffy Pops work as the owner and creatress of Morgan Perry Organics Farm and Healing Nursery, she and her husband homestead work and market locally while focusing on sustainability, conscientious cultivation and plant-based healing. Her shop includes a variety of handmade goods, including vegan leather earrings, stash jars of all different kinds, a great selection there, wine and shot glasses, stickers, shirts, and more. Tiffy is also a vegan chef and is often found on lot, offering farm to lot vegan food, and her menu regularly includes fresh organic produce, which is probably a lot better than some of the other things that you go and buy on lot that might not be as fresh. The other shop we wanna mention is Jam on Gifts, Jam on Gifts is the brainchild of Julie Laramie. Julie's been vending on lots since 95 and is the maker of original I Saw You With a Ticket Stub in Your Hand ticket frames. What? Man, we got to find out uh, a little bit more about Julie here. See if she can kick us something here, right? She also offers fish-themed postcards, jewelry, keychains, custom milestone buttons, koozies, whatever it is. If it's your first show or 500, she can help you commemorate the milestone. Julie also has widespread panic items. So go ahead, head over to the lot by Primal Soup. Check out This is a Farmhouse. Check out Jam on Gifts. Support the community that we are a part of. And man, we love you all out there. Thanks for listening to us.
1: We also want to mention Scott Mitchell over there at Fan Designs ending in a Z. So if you don't know how to spell designs, (laughs) end it with a Z. But Scott has great stuff from all over the Jam Band community. And actually, you know what? Scott's been seeing a lot of shows yet uh, lately. I'm really jealous of him.
0: Got to check. We got to check out Aggie. I think Aggie is the next one on the list, right?
1: Uh, Yeah. Aggie is the next one on the list. Scott highly recommends. And also he and his wife, Casey, are going to be at Peach Festival. So I'm going to be with them. And so maybe we'll have to do something from Peach Festival this summer, Josh. I don't know. But yeah, check out Scott over at Fan Designs. You just have to go check out his shop. He's got everything. You know, he doesn't have, like, uh, organic materials, but he's got shirts, <laughs> hats, he's got pins, he's got a lot of stuff. He's he's No good, veggie burritos. No veggie burritos, no potato burritos either. But <laughs> Scott's doing really well over there. We're really proud of him, and we're glad to partner with him as well. So shout out to you, Scott. Love you.
0: Right on. Love you, Scott. Love the lot by Primal Soup. And we love you, our fans. Thank you so much for listening to... This episode, really important and impactful one for me and Skinny. I want to once again thank my Uncle John Boddenhop for joining us today. Very cool to have him on and get his story, his journey, something that we are keen on talking about in our fourth season. If you want to check us out, you can follow us on the socials. We are on Twitter at stub underscore me underscore down. And we are also on Instagram at the same address, stub underscore me underscore down. I will also add our Reddit account is also at stub underscore me underscore down. So if you are on Reddit, come check us out. We're still navigating that situation. Yeah,
1: brownie rap- recipe is dropping soon. What? That's right. I, what is Reddit? That's right. If you,
0: if you need to learn how to make a potpourri bowl, We'll
1: head over to Ralph. Right uh, no, right. Nobody's listening difficult. to the end of this episode. <laughs> Nobody. <all> right. Right.
0: <laughs> right on. Well, thanks again for joining us here on Stum Me Down. Skinny, I love, love you. Scott. Love you, fans. And we will see you the next time you need to get out of your shitty seats and down in the path.
1: Right on. See you guys next episode. See you, J Dub.